Something I hear Christians say often, not all the time, but often, I hear the phrase, God just wants me to live my best life. Which, you know, if, you, if you've seen the best life now bumper stickers, you, you understand that a little bit. And I don't think there's, some, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Or something similar is, God just wants me to be happy. And, and once again, there's, there's not... It's not that I disagree with that exactly. I think God cares a whole lot more about your holiness than than your happiness. So I don't necessarily disagree with that. But oftentimes that's used as an excuse or a justification to do something we know we're not supposed to do. Well, God just wants me to be happy, and I'm way more happy at the lake on Sunday than I am at church, and so maybe I should just miss church this Sunday. Or God just, God just wants me to live my best life. You know, I can really glorify God by living my best life now, and my best life now is mountain biking every day and ignoring my wife and kids. Do you see how easily we use these as justifications? Or something else that that this often leads to is this thinking, uh, and I hear Christians say this even less, but I hear it said is, well, God will never let anything bad happen to me. I know God wouldn't let that happen to me. And it's just not true. And oftentimes, I don't say anything I figure it's the Holy Spirit's job to correct people, not necessarily mine. And so I kind of keep my mouth shut. But I oftentimes think about the early church. You know, Paul, as they were taking him outside of the city city to stone him, to throw rocks at him until he died, was he thinking as the first rock hit him, man, I'm so glad God's given me my best life now. He just wants me to be happy, and this is it. Or how about Peter when he was in prison? Did he think, oh, God will never let anything bad happen to me? Even Jesus, when he was in his earthly ministry, said, the world's going to hate you. The world hates me. The world's going to hate you. And he warned us of the trials and the persecution to come. He didn't say, you're just going to live a happy life free of any pain, free of any trial. And even James writes, consider it all joy when persecution comes, when trials come. You see, we get this very clear theology that being a Christian doesn't mean living a pain-free life. Being a Christian doesn't mean That you're just going to walk around happy-go-lucky, jolly, and comfortable your entire life. You're not going to live what we think of as the American dream. Living in comfort and worldly pleasures. So where does this theology come from? Why is this theology so prevalent in the American church? I think it's a misreading of Scripture. I think there's a lot of scripture we can take and we can twist and we can use it to justify just about anything and we can use it to justify living a non-sacrificial life. God has called us to a life of sacrifice. He has called us to an assignment. He, 
He has an assignment for each and every one of us. You have been created for a purpose. And God has a purpose in your life. But we take some pieces of Scripture, and we don't necessarily want to live a sacrificial life. We don't necessarily want to go through some of those hardships. And so we twist it to justify a life where we don't have to sacrifice, where we don't have to obey. We're going to enter, we're going to look at, I should say, one of those pieces of Scripture today. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 91. If you remember, we're doing Summer in the Psalm. We're in Psalm 91. Last week we looked at Psalm 90. Psalms uh, 90 uh, starts book 4. It was written by Moses. And so some people think that because Moses wrote 90, that he also wrote 91. The author's not actually identified. So uh, we're not going to draw that same conclusion just because I think that's bad logic. So we're going to go with Psalm 91 is still an unknown author. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. At a thousand, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him. Because he knows my name, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So we can see how easily that is twisted, can't we? As you read through that, man, it sure does sound like you'll never go through any trials. If you trust in God, there will never be a trial in your life. But as we dig a little bit deeper, I think we'll see how that is a false conclusion. So I would outline this with verses 1 and 2 being uh, the, the introduction. This is what is going to... The rest of the psalm is going to be based off of verses 1 and 2. From 3 through 6, we'll see actually that hard, the point of 3 through 6 is that hard times will come. And then 7 through 10 is, is uh, God's judgment. 11 through 13 is that you have an assignment and God has equipped you for that assignment. And then 14, there's a huge change. It goes from the psalmist writing to God declaring. It's almost as if God is saying, I agree so thoroughly with this, I'm going to put my stamp of approval on it. All right, so let's dig in and see what, what this is all about. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So the psalmist starts off making a declaration about God. That's what the psalmist starts off with. And this is what the rest of the psalm is going to be about. So we've got four different 
names for God here. Most high, the, the term most high is Elion here, and it means possessor of both heaven and earth. So God is both the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. It wasn't that he just created and left. He created and he possesses. You know, we can think of like an assembly line, or, or not just an assembly line, but maybe a craftsman who, who crafts this amazing piece of work for somebody else. But then he gives that thing away, right? And sometimes when you craft something and you put something, put your heart into it, and then you give it away, and you see people abuse it, it kind of breaks your heart a little bit. God didn't just create it and give it away. God created it and still possesses. So he is the possessor of heaven and earth. That's Elion. Then we also see Almighty. The word here is Shaddai. And that is Almighty. It is showing his absolute power and authority. So God is the possessor of heaven and earth, and he has absolute power and authority over all. And then in verse 2, he switches gears just a little bit and says Yahweh. Anytime you see in the Old Testament, anytime you see uh, the word LORD in all caps, that's actually Yahweh there. The, the Second Temple Jew, and just Jews in general, had such a reverence for God's name that they wouldn't even pronounce the whole thing. In fact, to this day, we're not entirely sure how you're supposed to pronounce God's name because they wouldn't do it. They had so much reverence for it. But they also wouldn't write it out. So they wouldn't write the entire word out. And as they began to translate it from Hebrew to Greek, they just started leaving it out altogether and using the term, the Greek term kurios, which means Lord. And that's where we get it to this day. That's how come anytime you see the capital, all caps, Lord, that is actually a reference to God's name. So here we have him saying, I will say to the Lord, I will say to God, and he uses his name Yahweh, and it reveals this personal relationship. There is a relationship between the psalmist and God. So he recognized him as the, as, as the possessor of heaven and earth, not just the creator, but also the possessor. He recognizes him as having all authority, the supreme power, and yet he also recognizes this very personal relationship. There are a lot of people that want to live in a religious aspect of Christianity. So they really want to follow some rules. They want Christianity for the morality. They want Christianity because it's a tradition. And so they love to follow the tradition, but they've left the relational aspect out of it. Some people might use the term legalist. And they think if they, they follow the tradition, if they follow the rules, God will reward them. But that's not exactly what's going on. There needs to be a personal relationship with God. God has created you and desires a personal relationship. And if you miss out on that, you will be missing out on God's shelter, shadow, refuge, and fortress. So he, he doesn't just stop with Yahweh. He also, this term God in verse 2 is Elohim making a reference to the supreme being. So we see this, this emphasis on God being the supreme being, the possessor with all authority, and yet 
there is a personal relationship there as well. It isn't that God is some deity that created and left and is leaving you to your own. God is interactive in our lives. And when we recognize that, then we find shelter, shadow, refuge, and fortress. All four of these words are words that show that God is a God who cares for us. He is a protector of us. When we recognize that he is the supreme being with all authority, who wants a relationship, we recognize that he is a protector as well. When we neglect the personal relationship side of who God is, then we don't recognize him as a protector. And it is very difficult, when, when you don't recognize God as the protector, when trials come, it's difficult to turn towards him. Because you don't, you don't see him as a protector, you see him as a punisher. There are some people that like to emphasize God's justice more than his love. There are some people that like to emphasize his love more than his justice as well. But, but there are some people that want to emphasize his justice and don't even mention his love. And those people are legalists who when the trials come, just think God is there to beat him. Just think God is there to beat us up. It's hard to have a relationship with someone you think is there to beat you. Someone who is there to whack you. But God's not there like that. He's there to protect us. He's there with a personal relationship for us. So when we recognize that, then we dwell, abide, and trust. This term dwell is actually, it's literally pitch a tent. And in those days, where did you live? You lived at a place where you pitched your tent. And what it means is to live in the presence of God. When you think about dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, you think about, you should be thinking about living in the presence of the Most High. Living in the presence of the possessor of heaven and earth. Oftentimes people think that this is where we find God. It's in the building. And so they come to the building to get a piece of God. Or I hear other people that like, you know, if, if only I can just pray, I can muster up God in me. And I think it's just bad theology. The second you accept Christ as your Savior, the second you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And you can't have less of an indwelling and more of an indwelling. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can submit to that Holy Spirit that indwells you, or you can build up walls against the Holy Spirit that indwells you, but you can't have more or less of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. And we need to recognize that the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwells us. We live with the presence of God. You can't come to church to get more of the presence of God in your life. You can come to church to grow in the presence of God, but you can't get more of it. So we need to practice the presence of God in our life. And part of practicing that presence, I think, is obedience. It's so cool to see the baptisms that happened here today. People stepping out in faith, desiring to obey. I grew up, my mom was a Christian, so I grew up hearing the gospel. 
I was one of those Christians that like couldn't tell you their conversion story because, you know, I just grew up knowing the gospel. But I didn't know what it meant to obey. I didn't know what it meant to live my life in submission to Christ. And so I wanted to still be the one to call the shots for my life. And the result was pain and destruction and devastation until I learned what it meant to obey. And I learned there was a big difference between belief and obedience. And when I began to obey, I began to grow in God's grace. You see, when I put my faith and trust in Christ, He had freed me from being a slave to sin. Before I put my faith and trust in Christ, I was a slave to sin. I put my faith and trust in Christ, and God freed me from being a slave to sin. But I willingly turned back to sin because I chose sin over obedience. But as I learned to obey, I learned that I didn't have to return to the sins that I hated. Do you ever wonder why that sin continues to entrap you? That sin that you swore you'd never do again. That you promised yourself, I'd never do that again. I hate myself when I do it. And yet, you turn towards it again. Part of it is that you've never learned what it means to obey. I think about my kids. Obedience to their dad comes pretty easy when I'm standing right there. Obedience is a little bit more difficult when I tell them to do something and then leave the room. Obedience for us is much easier when we practice the presence of God. When we remind ourselves that He is with us and He sees us at all times. It's not just in church. He is with us and indwells us all the time. So we've got dwells, and this this term abide means to stay connected to. To stay connected to. We need to stay connected. We need to abide in Christ. The story that Christ gives is uh, when he is giving the example, he talks about a tree, and we need to abide in him. And the whole idea is if you cut off a branch of a tree, and you go and you stick it in water, will it live? For how long will it live? What if you don't even stick it in water? What if you just put it out in the sun? But if you keep that branch attached to the tree, if you keep it connected to, it lives. So this term abide means live or stay connected. Live in connectedness to Christ. And the question is, how do I stay connected? And I think that's a good question to discuss on the way home. So as you're driving home today, why don't you ask, how do you stay connected? I think there are several different ways we can stay connected, but that's a good conversation point for the ride home. So how do you stay connected? And then finally, trust. So we dwell, we abide, and we trust. We have confidence in God, who he, that he is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. So that's the declaration, that, that all else from this point on will be framed in Psalm 91. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from deadly pestilence. So when we think about deliver, I think we need to think about 
uh, the different tenses. There's a past tense, there's a present tense, and there's a future tense. Oftentimes, we emphasize the past tense. The New Testament emphasizes the future tense, meaning God is saving us from a future punishment. When we die, he has saved us from hell. And we often think about the hope that we have. But there's also the present, that there is a clear and present danger right now, and that he can save us from that. So there's deliver you from the snare of the fowler. That's just simply a trapper, someone who is entrapping us. And from deadly pestilence. The pestilence is a disease. So he can deliver us from deadly disease. Sometimes that delivery is in the form of our life to come. We all know somebody who has died from a deadly disease. Or maybe you yourself are struggling with a disease right now, and you're looking at this and you're saying, but, but he promised me that, it, that if I just dwelled and abided and trusted, that I would be delivered. Sometimes the deliverance is the future tense that we will be delivered when the new heavens and new earth are made. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will be delivered today. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. And this is a reference to a bird who is giving shelter to her, her chicks. If you've ever seen it, it's a, it's a pretty funny sight. It's got all these legs sticking out of the bird, and you can barely even see the chicks. But what's the whole point? The point is that the hen covers, the hen protects. And that's the point that, that he's getting at here. He is a faithful, his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. But a shield is what you would use to block an arrow. A buckler is like a defensive wall. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Pestilence is an epidemic with a high death rate. But what's the point of all this? I think people oftentimes fear the unknown, right? Why do we have, a, why, are, why is there a greater fear around the world of COVID than there is of the flu? For the most part, it's the unknown. When, when COVID first hit, doctors didn't know what to expect. Doctors didn't know exactly how to treat it. So there was this great fear because it was unknown. But as doctors began to figure it out, it became less and less fearful. That's the idea that we're getting at here. So you will not fear the terror of the night. Why would they fear terror at night? The, the psalmist knows that there are, there are dangers all around us. And so people fear the unknown. And what he's saying here isn't that the terror won't get you. He's not saying that the epidemic won't get you. He's not saying that you might not die from deadly disease. You might just die from that deadly disease. You might die from the epidemic. You might die from that unknown fear that stalks you at night. He's not saying that. What he's saying is you don't need to fear it. Because you don't need to fear death. If you know that God is the possessor of heaven and earth, that He is the supreme being, and that He has a relationship with you, there is nothing on this earth that you should fear. 
Because you can trust God in the end. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the world. So what's happening here is people will take this and say, okay, so there's this war, and this person that dwells and abides and trusts, he will see everyone else dying, but he won't be touched. And that's not necessarily what's going on here. What's going on is that there is judgment. There is God's judgment coming. That's what he's getting at. The term recompense means getting what they deserve. So you will see the wicked getting what they deserve. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. This term befall means to uh, conquer. So what he's really what's saying is no evil shall be allowed to conquer you. No evil shall be allowed to win in your life. But it's because we have put our faith and trust in Christ. It's very similar to there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is condemnation for those who do wicked. There is condemnation for those who have not put their faith and trust in God, who do not abide and dwell and trust, who do not believe in God. There is condemnation for those. But for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, there is no condemnation. That's the point that he's getting at. For you who have put your faith and trust in God, there's no condemnation Evil will not conquer you. Because we all know in the end, God wins. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample under foot. And if you're familiar with the life of Christ, you'll recognize two of these lines. For he will command his angels concerning you, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quoted both of those lines to Jesus during his temptation. So Jesus goes through 40 days of fasting, and Satan comes and he starts to tempt him. And this is what he does to tempt him. He twists Scripture. And we see people still doing that today. Twisting Scripture to make us confused about what it actually says. And the point that he's getting across is not that you won't be hurt. Jesus knew the outcome of his, of his earthly ministry. Jesus knew what was going to happen in the end. It wasn't like Jesus was saying, no, I mean, I trust this. And so I believe that, that nothing bad will ever happen to me in my life. Jesus knew in the end he was going to face a brutal death. But he also knew that he had an assignment And so these angels are guarding him concerning the assignment that Jesus had in his life. You have an assignment in your life and God has given you, He has equipped you with everything you need in your life for your assignment. This doesn't mean that God has given you everything you have to live a comfortable life and never live any sacrifice in your life at all. It doesn't mean that you will just stow up in your house, living comfortably, watching Netflix. What it means is God has an assignment for you and He has equipped you for your assignment. And then God declares. It's like as if God is saying, I agree with this so much 
that I need to finish it with my own declaration. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This term long life here, it it, it doesn't necessarily mean a quantity of life, but a quality of life. So having a long life, but all you do is stare at the wall and watch the paint dry, that's actually torturous. But having a quality of life, a life where you have lived your best life now, is something worthy. Now, I'd love for us to redefine what living your best life now means. Because it doesn't mean, in God's eyes, it doesn't mean living a life for yourself, but it means living a life on assignment for God. That's what living your best life now means. That means Paul and Peter, although their lives were cut short compared to earthly standards, they lived their best life now because they lived a life dedicated to God. There is a quality of life that cannot be obtained by things that cannot be obtained by our own desires, but it is obtained by obedience to God and living out the assignment He has for us. On January 8, 1956, Jim Elliott, along with four of his companions, landed on Palm Beach. Many of you already know the story. They landed there because they wanted to share the gospel with a native tribe that had never heard the gospel before. This was their first opportunity to hear the gospel and know Jesus as their Savior. And so Jim Elliott and his four companions land on Palm Beach to go share the gospel, but instead they were met with a spear. And all five of them were killed. Two years later, his wife wrote a book She called it, In the Shadow of the Almighty. And it was by no mistake that she named it that. And some people might look and say, what do you mean, In the Shadow of the Almighty? But he just promised all these things and Jim Elliot was killed. He was killed serving God, living his assignment out. He was killed because he was standing in the shadow of the Almighty and he knew that God was the possessor of heaven and earth, that he was the supreme being, that he is the supreme being, and that he had a personal relationship and assignment for Jim Elliott, and so he was going to live that out even if it meant death. He knew what Paul meant when Paul wrote, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This this psalm does not promise that you won't go through trials. What it does promise is that when you go through trials, God will be there to comfort you. God will be there as a hen over her chicks to love them during the trial. And if you're not abiding 
dwelling and trusting. When the trial hits, you will shake your fist at God and in bitterness say, God, you promised these things and you were wrong. But when you practice the presence of God, when you live a connected life and you practice trusting Him, when the trial hits, you will turn to Him for comfort. So may you practice obedience. Practice living in the presence of God. Staying connected to God and trusting in God. May you live your best life now. Living out your assignment from your Creator. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Psalm 91, though it has been used as a weapon to twist your plan and your purpose for us. Yet it is a promise that we can hold tightly to. Not that we won't feel trials, not that we won't struggle in this life, but that when the trials hit, we can count it as all joy. Because we know that you are growing us in you, in your grace. And that you have an assignment for us. And we pray that you would help us to live that assignment out. In your name we pray.